Welcome to the GRC Professional Podcast, where we discuss all things GRC. Welcome to the GRC Professional Podcast. My name is Kwame Sasha, I'm the editor at the GRC Institute. And today we have with us our CEO, Naomi Burley, and our expert in all things regulatory and enforcement, Carol Ferguson. Hi, Carol. Welcome back to the podcast. And hello, Naomi. Hello. And Carol's also good for compliance gossip as well. <laughs> but we won't be talking about any of that on the podcast. <laughs> Maybe for the conference. So we may at the conference have a little gloss about some things, but, you know, we'll hold it off. Till- <laughs> uh, so today we will be having a bit of a chat about PwC and non-disclosure agreements. And I'm going to hold off the long introduction. I'm just going to throw Carol straight into it. What are we talking about with PwC non-disclosure agreements? Um, Kwame, thank you very much. Um, for those who lived in another planet, um, of course, you every, everyone knows about the PwC problem. But if, if in a nutshell, in 2016, one of the partners received some information that was subject to an NDA with the ATO, um, he then came back to the office and as as that particular um, matter unfolded, which was going to make some fairly big changes that would have affected clients like Apple, etc. He he then sat down with some of the partners in the tax department and in other departments within PwC, and they formulated some strategies to help those those entities get through the tax implications should that that um, tax change come through. Um, the ATO found out about it. It um, it went to the Tax Practitioners Act. The relevant partner was was fined and and sanctioned for two years, etc. But the ATO didn't think that that was sufficient. They informed the federal police, and so the matter has now proceeded. It's an extremely serious thing. But having said that, I mean Arthur Anderson a million years ago for all you young folk um, were engaged in similar issues. So it does happen within large organisations. So large organisations sometimes can have compliance issues of this type happen that seem just to come out of the woodwork. You know, you can have um, an Eddie Obeid type person working within your organisation and next minute everybody's worried about what's going on. I mean, one of the entities, one of the large four as an example, has one has um, um, a partner who sold dud investments to other partners. So you know it's really important that you, it's not a reflection on the entity itself, but just on a number of individuals within that entity, because PwC of course has has appropriate practices in relation to conflicts of interest, and and has maintained those <coughs> over a period of time. And I apologise for my dog, who is. Who is giving us her thoughts as well. So um, having said that, the, the nub of the problem with the PwC one is non-disclosure agreements. And, and I want to take just a few minutes to talk about those because they're the sort of, um, what's the right word, the hallmark of, the, of fixed interest type investments. So your fund managers, uh, credit managers, will be going to meetings with various entities where various matters are discussed, which may or may not be in the public um, domain. And particularly for listed companies where the um, transaction is still yet to come, it's really important that all of your fund managers are aware of the importance of NDAs. 
and that they are recorded and and so that you people know exactly where an NDA is and the implications of that is discussed with your either your legal sorry preferably with your legal department so that there is um, some sort of legal basis that you can just do that disclosure so it's it's a matter of just saying are there NDAs that we've signed up to um, and how do we ensure that we're going to meet that requirement? Is it just for the individual or is it for the company as a whole? So it's it's a very important one to ensure that NDAs are as much as possible an individual obligation rather than a, um, a collective company one, because the chances then of, it, of causing a problem, say, for instance, if a fund manager in another fund entirely and sitting nowhere near that particular fund manager decides to make an investment in XYZ um, um, property fund and meanwhile um, the first man manager has in fact signed an NDA because the XYZ property fund is about to offload one of its significant investments. So it's very important that you keep a real handle on what's being signed and I, I assure you that your fund managers are going to hate you for this because this is not something that they want to give up the goss on. They like to think that this is something that they control, but it certainly is important that at all times you're aware of the NDAs that are out there and how they are operating. Now, the other thing that happens with NDAs is that they can be used by some entities, unfortunately, as a sword rather than a shield. And an entity that I was involved in went to a, um, a meeting of fund managers <coughs> to and they'd signed an NDA and and it was in relation to transactions that were happening for that particular um, fund. But in the back of the document that they were given was another document entirely, which set out a um, particular transaction that had not been disclosed to anybody. And they were very concerned. I mean, because this was utterly confidential. It hadn't been discussed in the shareholders meeting, uh, sorry, fund managers meeting. So they didn't know was this going to exclude them from investing in the market? And it would have. So I went to ASIC and had a conversation with them about it and about my belief that perhaps this might have been a very calculated effort to ensure that um, the entity did not, my entity did not invest in the market. And ASIC very fortunately recognised that this was a very serious matter and forced the company that had put the confidential material in, in our booklet to release that transaction to the market and to suspend trading until such times as they had. Because ASIC absolutely believed that the aim of it was to ensure that my, my company was kept out of the market because they, they were large holders. So NDAs can be a really significant problem. So it's very important that you train people so they understand what, what privacy actually means. They understand that that means that there's not everyone that they can talk to, even within the entity. You can't, I mean, that's the PwC one. He talked to other people outside of the tax department, but it wouldn't have mattered if he talked to his secretary. That would have, in fact, been a potential breach of it. So it's very important that you really do a lot of education on that space. So 
NDAs a problem. Now, the, the other problem of the PwC one is what you do with an auditor and in concern, where you're concerned that that auditor may not necessarily be one that you want to be associated with going forward. Now, PwC have currently got Z. Switzkowski um, undertaking a review, and it strikes me that most of the potential regulatory action, except as against the individual um, practitioner, has in fact been held off until the, the till Ziggy's review is finalised. Okay, so the Switovsky review um, has got a wide ambit and it will look very closely at all aspects of the disclosures within PwC, who it was disclosed to, whether there was a potential profit from that disclosure, etc. When that comes out, then there will be further um, professional reviews that will be undertaken by the Tax Practitioners Board, um, by the accountancy of boards, etc. So there'll be internal pro professional reviews that will go to how people have been conducting their business. And interestingly, PwC has had nine further partners resign. And some of those were some of the most senior financial services partners in the industry, people with huge, huge reputations for excellence. So it certainly has been uh, a tsunami of problems within PwC because you're looking at their total, you know, their former managing director, etc. I mean, there are a number of things that are going to be a problem. And, and so the regulatory action that's going to be taken is in the future. But it's what happens within individual companies at the moment that's the interesting point. So a number of the companies have already indicated that they don't wish to have PwC as their auditor and have um, undertaken processes to replace them. This comes down to the, uh, the audit agreement and the um, ability for um, an entity to trigger a change of, audit, of auditor. So is it on good fame and character, um, on actual proceedings, just on a change your mind, Etc. So have a look carefully at the um, provisions that you have for your auditor to make certain that they're ones which allow you the most flexibility in terms of removal of your auditor. That's critical. Whether you, whether you um, trigger a change of auditor or not is simply up to an organisation. I'm not saying that PwC are bad auditors by any stretch of the imagination. But if the if the entity that if you are an entity that believes that having a, a particular auditor enhances your your regulatory um, excellence, then that's something you might want to consider very carefully, and certainly have discussions at the board level and with senior management to ensure that the the conversations that you have are very carefully considered because. Sometimes people put their auditors in their offer documents, certainly in a prospectus an auditor would be there and and the sign off on the accounts for for the fund are done by the auditor, etc. So, you know, whether that's continuing to promote a particular audit firm is another matter entirely. So it's very important that you consider the implications of continuing with your current auditor on a regular basis, not just as a result of 
of a particular event, but that just as an ongoing basis, you consider whether that's a company that you want to continue to be involved with, that there is a regular um, discussion with, with your auditor about who they are, what's happening with them, and that is considered not just in Australia, but in the wider the wider market. So you might want to look at what's happening in New York, what's happening in Washington, what's happening in London, etc. And are those matters that are relevant to your consideration of retention of your of your current auditor versus someone else? I'm also very very much in favour of what happens at the change of auditor process is that there is a beauty parade, for want of a better word, of a number of auditors, so that you've got people the CFO and and senior um, staff are reviewing the choice of auditor in an active way. So they're not just looking at a piece of paper, but there is actually a discussion with the, with the entity about, you know, how it is that they propose to do it. And you ask them a couple of hard questions. What if? And the what if questions are the ones which should be able to, to underpin your choice of, of a particular auditor. So... With the PwC one, consider NDA, consider training, and also as a result of, of this one, it just goes back to consideration of is this auditor the right auditor for you? Have you undertaken a, an appropriate review? Have you had a conversation with your auditor and, and assured yourself that there is not a problem from your perspective? And then there is no problem continuing on with them. But certainly, I think you need to have a conversation with with your auditor just to ensure that these don't happen, these things have not happened or will not happen in the future with any auditor. So it's a matter of, of in the conversations that you have with your auditor, discussing with them their, their training about conflicts of interest, about retention of, of privacy because this is a privacy issue, et cetera. So they're the questions that you need to be very strong on to have a discussion with your auditor. I feel like you've given lots of advice, but I'm still going to ask anyways. Um, is there any sort of final words you want to leave um, on this particular matter, whether some non-disclosure agreements or conflicts of interest or anything like that? I think the main point I want to do is to ensure that that all of these decisions are um, careful and serious ones. With the NDAs, it's about recording the information, ensuring that you're kept up to date on who's giving them out, that people can't just willy-nilly sign an NDA to bind the company without there being consequences for it. Certainly, any NDA binding the whole of the company cannot be signed by the fund manager. So it's really important that you look at and, and they ensure that they're not undertaking um, NDAs on behalf of the company under an apparent authority um, signatory. Because unfortunately, it can be that the document has been signed and the person says, oh, I can sign that and signed it. And so therefore it's still legally enforceable even though it's not been signed by in accordance with the, re the requirements of the company, but because it's an apparent authority that, you know, you're bound by it. Um, in relation to auditors, it's about just ensuring that your change of audit process and your review of audit process is an active one, that it's not just a rubber stamp at the end of the day, and that there is actually a process in which 
you're involved along with the CFO and other relevant staff to ensure that the that the right questions are asked and that the um, the right provisions are in the appointment of the auditor to ensure that they can be removed in certain circumstances, which can be triggered by by you at any stage. Well, excellent. Well, thank you so much for your time, Carol, and thank you so much for your time, Naomi. And You're very welcome. I didn't say much in that one. <laughs> <laughs> and look, I and uh, finish by saying, look, as I said at the beginning, this isn't a condemnation of PwC because it was a, a couple of random individuals and PwC is a much greater organisation than a couple of random individuals. It's just that the press has got hold of them because of their notoriety as being and, and reputation as being one of the best in the world and how this can happen with one of the best in the world. But unfortunately, you know, some of the best in the world can also have problems. I mean, if you look at Charlie Teo, best, allegedly the best in the world, and other entities that have, un, have had very serious issues such as this happen, Enron, you know, previously a world leader and it's gone now um so you know when you look at those sorts of things bad things can happen to good people and but it's very important that you um, ensure that you have in place measures to ensure that bad things don't happen to good people mm. and and it comes down to active sometimes to active whistleblower processes internally so if, if a person is un, um, being approached by someone with information that they shouldn't have, that there is a process for um, ensuring that that information is, is taken up the line and is taken seriously. And if it's not... And that there won't be retaliation, that it's a safe space to do and, that. And if, if there is a concern that it's not being listened to, that you have an active um, whistleblowing hotline so that anyone can make a report about things that are concerning them. And, and I think I think this highlights really all those discussions we've ever had about reputational risk. And sometimes yeah. they go in a circular fashion where everyone goes, well, at the end of the day, the organisation is continuing. It's not, it's not off the market. It's not dead. But I can tell you now there's a whole lot of opportunities that they won't be able to take up. And there's a whole lot of people working there who are now uncomfortable because they're being tarred with the same brush. So it is damaging and it's damaging for uh, you know, quite a long period of time for those people who work there. So it's not just it's not just the immediate cost. There are long-term ongoing costs. There may well be recruitment costs later on. And, you know, you owe it to your employees to do better. Yeah. And, and look, as I said, it's it's a small number of, of employees mm. Uh, mm. Um, compared to the rest of the, the size of the company. Yeah. And, you get bad seeds. You also can sometimes get people who take information and knowledge is power and they think that this is an opportunity to market to a, a client who may be a little bit, you know, wobbly as to whether they want to continue. Well, if you're hugely um, market sensitive information and you, you can prove that you've got your finger on the pulse. Yeah. Um, that can actually be quite seductive. Yeah, yeah. So there's, I mean, there's lots of lots of those common themes we hear and we discuss across all organisations, but it is culture and conduct. Yeah. It is having clarity around these grey areas, what may seem like an email that you might think, oh, that's 
that's a mistake that's been sent, I won't worry about it or whatever, and you brush it off as opposed to making it a priority. And it is all about communication all the way up and, you know, keep going back to a values-based system. Um, and that could happen to anybody. And like you say, it, it only takes two people to send the wrong email. Yeah. And and particularly um, it, it means that the ongoing education in relation to client confidential confidentiality and non-disclosure agreements is a is a ongoing basis. It isn't just do it once when the when the employee starts and then you forget about it. This is um, information that needs to be repeated at least every six months, in my view, so that people are really focused on the fact that this is an organisation that takes those things seriously, and mm. and it's, if possible that it can be done on a computerised basis, so the results of that that education are actually recorded. Yeah. Because if that doesn't happen, then the chances are that it can get out of people's minds um, yeah. in the interest yeah. of trying to to market actively and all of the, the people within entities are encouraged to do active marketing, that the active marketing process is some somehow or other suborns the regulatory um, requirements. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So sorry, Kwame, we could keep talking about that reputational risk <laughs> side forever and a day and you know and I think this is a worthwhile conversation to come back to because like I said I've been in plenty of conversations with people where they go yeah well you know my board just dismisses this whole sort of big picture reputational thing because they look at these organizations they go well Ford's still going and all these others are still going and Nike's still going um, but it cost them a lot of money at the time and they lost opportunities at the time imagine where they'd be now if it hadn't have happened Yep. And, you know, we'll look back on this in three years' time and imagine where PwC would have been. And, and, and it's not other, just them. It's yeah. lots of – it's everybody else. Exactly. And it's, and the other thing is, even five years ago, if that if some of those matters were undertaken today, because of the strength of social media, the chances of destruction of value are infinitely stronger than mm. they were. So when people are linked through Facebook, LinkedIn, um, et cetera, et cetera, gossip, for want of a better word, is promulgated much more more um, freely than what it would have been done five years ago. So the, the question of reputational risk is absolutely critical and it's one that has to be hammered home mm. all the time that it, the reputational risk is not to you but it's to the company. And your duty is to the company. Company. Not just That's right. That is that is governance one oh one right yeah. there. Yeah. And so, you know, people go out there and have conversations with your with the staff of your organizations and, and try to be gentle and understanding because, you know, this is there is, as I said, a lot of pressure on people to to get a marketing edge, but mm. it's whether the marketing edge is got by by a sword. Or the marketing is being yeah. bought by by goodwill yeah. is the difference. Yeah, absolutely. I, I'm sorry to have sorry, to. Sorry, we have we really have to wind up. up. Like I said, this is a whole other <laughs> podcast. I think we'll come back yeah. to because I think this yeah. is a really important one when we're talking. You know, it melds in with the accountability regime at the end of the. It, and I won't I won't go off on that tangent, but I think these are all in together. You know, there's this trend to go to want to have individuals be accountable but at the end of the day their job was to protect their their entity so yeah. another day another day stay tuned <laughs> thank you so much carol thank you so much naomi
Thank you, Juan. Thank you. This podcast has been a production of the Australian Compliance Institute and the music was done by Rob Neary.